We've talked about the thrill of hope these last few weeks leading into Christmas. We discovered that Jesus is God with us because God is for us. And that Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to save us each who would believe in Him from the penalty of our sin, from its power over our lives and its presence with us at His return. And when we begin to talk about Jesus bringing peace on earth, what we're describing is the expansive nature of this salvation Jesus brings. That it's bigger than just you or I, that it infects the entirety of the created world, and that Jesus has come not only to save individual sinners, but to reorder all of the world in a way that honors God. And so we begin in Luke chapter 2 today with the angels singing to the shepherds. Jesus had just been born of Mary there in Bethlehem, and the angels go proclaiming His birth. In verse 8, it says that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And there suddenly was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom He is pleased. This is a beautiful story about the broader impact of what the Savior would do, that He had come to bring peace to earth. That amongst those that would seek God because of His grace towards them, peace would come to them. And and I feel that it's important for us to dig into what this means. Because oftentimes when we use the word peace, we don't use it the way the angels did when they sang. We use the word peace ultimately to describe the absence of fighting. And so at the end of a war, you might see a peace a greedy or a, uh, agreement, a treaty or a ceasefire agreement where, where two sides, though still in conflict with one another, choose to stop fighting one another because it's no longer expedient or reasonable. That's not really the kind of peace the Bible is describing. When Jesus proclaims, when the angels proclaim in Christ's coming peace on earth, they don't mean an end of open hostility. They mean something different. The Jewish word for peace is shalom which carries a deeper meaning, indicating that all of the created world is functioning in its proper order. Not the absence of strife, but the presence of things as they should be, as if all of creation joined together singing praises to God in beautiful harmony. Something bigger than you and I choosing not to fight. Something bigger about the glory of God in the highest and us in the created world singing along in unison, all in our right parts, proclaiming that glory. That's the peace that the angels proclaim coming into the world. This is what we would call a comprehensive peace. Not some peace, not peace by degrees, not just the absence of conflict, but an entire and comprehensive peace of everything being rightly ordered, working together as it was designed in perfect unity. And with that, we find two significant elements of the peace that Jesus brought to us. And I want to encourage you to look at Ephesians chapter 2 with us, because this text shows us these two elements of 
of a comprehensive peace that God wants us to sink into and enjoy. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentile, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and is broken down in in his flesh by dividing the wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul describes this this comprehensive peace that Jesus brings to us. He says plainly, Jesus is our peace. And he brings peace to us in in two ways. One is that Jesus brings peace between humanity and God. That because of our sin, we were in opposition to God and we were deserving of God's judgment for our sin. We did not stand in right relationship with him outside of Christ. The, 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 The apostle just told us, he said, you were without God and without hope in the world outside of Christ. So we stood in open opposition and enmity to God. God looked upon us deserving of righteous judgment. And and there isn't peace. There's a fractured relationship. And Jesus comes to bring peace between God and humanity. We were outside of the family and without hope, but by the blood of Jesus, we were made at peace with God, part of his family, adopted into his home. By His blood, He declared peace with us. And through the work of His Spirit, He has transformed our hearts through faith to be inclined to cease our fighting with Him and to trust Him. So the work of God in Jesus and His coming is to declare peace with us. And He does this in this really powerful way. The Bible says He came and preached peace to those who were near and those who were far. And what He's getting at is that the people of Israel were in some senses nearer to God. They had heard the word of God. They had been blessed by God. But but they still were in some way not at peace with him. Because even though they had the very word of God, they still possessed the sin nature that we all do and didn't walk at peace with him. In fact, for many of us, knowing the law makes us more inclined to break it because we have this rebellious bent. And so those who were near, who had the word of God, who who had been called to be God's people, yet were distant from him at heart, Jesus came to proclaim peace to them. People who lived relatively moral lives, who you would have looked at and said those were good people, still needed Jesus to restore peace between them and God. Because sin is a matter of the heart and our disposition towards him, regardless of external behaviors that people might look at and say, oh, that's a good person. So those who were near, who were relatively moral, who had and generally kept the, the, the legal requirements of God's word as best they could, still failed and needed peace.
peace. And those who were far off, and that's the depiction of the non-Jewish world who didn't know anything about the Word of God, who just kind of lived according to however they felt or whatever their pagan religious practice was at the day. He said, you were far away from God. You weren't even seeking Him. And He's come and proclaim peace to you as well. See, regardless of our relative morality, we all stand guilty of sin before God. Regardless of our knowledge of the Bible, we all stand guilty of our sin before God. And Jesus has come in this amazing power and grace, and He has declared peace by His blood to those who were near and those who were far. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 depicts this beautifully. And it says that, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, peace with God isn't found in perfect obedience. Otherwise, none of us would ever have it. Peace is found because Jesus endured the penalty for our sin. And because the Spirit has come to our hearts if we have believed, and He has given us the Spirit by which we cry out to God as Father rather than running from Him or viewing Him as opposition. This is the work of God. Jesus has come to build peace amongst men and God. The second element that you see in Ephesians was that Jesus has come to establish peace between men. That Jesus has come to to build a lasting, enduring peace between people. And, And you see right away in Ephesians that he says there's this wall of hostility that divides you. And, and, and what he's describing is a division based on ethnic terms, the Jewish world and the, the non-Jewish world. So an ethnic division between humanity. He says that Jesus has come to destroy that. He's come to destroy all forms of hostility between men and each other. And, and the depiction you get here is that Christ is at work in us, making us one humanity, one people before God, one family. That in Christ, regardless of our differences of, of background and experience, we have more that is in common than what separates us. And, and truthfully, I find the struggle there is to remember our identity in Christ. And to identify more and more with who Jesus says we are and less and less with what the world says about us. There are hundreds of reasons For almost everyone in this room to not walk in unity and love with someone else in this room. Whether it's different economic backgrounds, family experiences, whatever it is. There are plenty of reasons that this world will throw at us to divide us. But Jesus has come not just to stop the fighting, but to make us one family. One family before God, part of his household. Now this is incredibly difficult and it's difficult for a number of reasons. One is that in our flesh we will struggle to see past our own experience. Every one of us will. I do it all the time. Our experience is all we know and so it's difficult for us to understand someone else's life. Because of that it's much easier to to kind of sit in judgment of whatever they do and to avoid seeing our own because we only know our own experience. 
Our flesh is always present. Even though the Spirit of God is changing us, we still carry around these sin natures and these tendencies that threaten to separate us from other people who Jesus says are our brothers and sisters. Not only that, the enemy desires to separate and divide the church and ruin it and and destroy its effectiveness for the kingdom. And I want you to think about this. In John 17, when Jesus prays for the church... Not just his followers. He says, I want to pray for those who are far off. And this is what he says. I don't ask only for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. He said, I'm not just praying for these 12 guys that follow me. I'm praying for everyone who's going to hear the gospel and trust in God because of what they have said. So that includes us, the church in America today, the church in Latin America, the church in Asia, the church in Africa, the church in Europe. All of us are included in this prayer. And what he says, I'm praying for them, what? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That you may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I want to let that sink in for a minute. One that when when Jesus is approaching his death and he sits to pray for us that this is what he prays for you know you know i pray uh, for for my children a lot um i pray be, i want to be a better father for them so so prayers of confession and repentance are, are common prayers that express my hope and my intercession for them of what god will do in their lives i, I pray for them a lot but but i can guarantee you that that if i knew right if i knew that that tonight i would be arrested imprisoned and and that by sundown tomorrow i would be dead you could imagine that the particular prayer that i would make for them would, would be very significant to me this would mean a lot this would get to the root. This, these wouldn't be small prayers about small things, but this would be big visionary prayers of what I want God to do in their lives. And when Jesus in that moment prays this big visionary prayer for the church, what, what, what does he pray for? That they may be one as you and I are one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We've, we've got to see this beautiful thing is that if we can't walk in peace with one another, the world cannot believe that God sent Jesus. They can't believe it. Jesus says it right here. The world cannot believe that, that Jesus was sent by the Father if the church doesn't walk in unity with one another. If we don't live in peace as one family. And this is difficult. The enemy wants to destroy that. Our flesh makes it a struggle. But it's important. It's so important that it's the one thing Jesus highlights in his final time of prayer before being arrested for us. And so what's the call for us to embrace this unity and love one another? Not just the absence of fighting, but pursuing peace and unity as a family. So Jesus has come to to set us at peace with the Father and to set us at peace with one another. That all of our relationships would be characterized by peace. Now, you and I know something at the moment we say that. Is, that is not our experience. Uh, there is unrest and war all over the world. There is unrest in our streets. And if we're honest about it, there is a lack of peace in many of our homes. And if we're even more honest, as we see the plummeting gas prices, a lot of us have an anxiety that permeates our souls. See, the rest of the world celebrates with $1.95 gas, but everyone in Houston is a little freaked out by it. 
And so we have this kind of global strife that we see. We have racial discord. We have our streets just kind of flooded at times with the obvious expressions that there isn't peace. I'm not here to blame anybody for anything. There are reasons for protest. There are times for that. I don't know or understand every situation. But I do have the ability to look at it all and go, we don't have peace. We just don't. We don't have peace globally or racially. We don't have peace interpersonally. And we don't have peace in our own hearts at times. And so when we say uh, Jesus came to bring peace, the reality is I'm singing a song about the Prince of Peace, but I'm not necessarily feeling that today. What do we do? One, I want to point out something that this is a coming peace. It is not here. We should not expect it to be here. Not yet. It's coming. Don't let its absence indicate to you that it's not coming. Let that drive you in hope to wait expectantly. But it's a coming peace. It's not here yet, but it's on its way. And I want you to look when the prophet Isaiah foretells the coming of this peace. It gives us, one, a clue about what it's like. And two, an indicator of when we will get to experience it. So look at Isaiah chapter 2 with me. And we'll go from there to Isaiah 9 in just a moment. So in Isaiah 2 verse 2. He said, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he shall judge between the nations. And shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So I want you to see what what, what the prophet depicts. He depicts a coming day when when the people of God in Christ will be lifted high and that Jesus will be glorified amongst all the nations and the peoples will will flood to him seeking justice, freedom, wisdom, and truth. That they will come to Jesus in worship and that his people will be with them and he's going to do something amazing throughout all the nations. It will be the end of all hostility. In fact, he says what people had used for war, they'll turn into means of production and cultivation. That which brought death and destruction will be bring life and blessing. That's coming. And it says coming in the latter days. Now, when is that? Well, we don't know for sure. And so Isaiah 9 communicates even further the clarity of when we ought to expect this day and how this all connects to Christmas. So go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. So, so when do we get this peace? Well, 
Here's what we get in. When his kingdom comes. And, and I love this. He says there's this, this peace that's coming where we see the end of all oppression and, and everything that was used in war and strife is, is absolutely destroyed and gone. And in that day, we will celebrate. But, but what's the key to unlocking this peace? It says this, this son who's coming. This child who will be born, who will be the prince of peace. And when his kingdom comes in its fullness, peace will reign perfectly, comprehensively, and eternally. Jesus is coming as the Prince of Peace and His government will put an end to all other forms of government. See, we have a tendency in America to take pride in our government and if you look at it comparatively, we've been blessed by God. But it's not perfect. And in the midst of that, that oppression and injustice happen. We don't have a perfect system and we don't have perfect people interacting with it. And so mistakes get made. Problems happen. Oppression and injustice still occur. And they're going to until Jesus returns. But when he comes back, you're going to see the supplanting of every other form of government with the exclusive eternal reign of Jesus. And by the way, that won't be a democracy. Jesus will reign Perfectly in justice and righteousness, and the people of God, redeemed by His blood, will walk in eternal, complete peace. It's coming. So, a couple of things with that. One is we know the Bible has stated clearly when that will come, when His government and reign comes in its fullness. We'd be foolish to expect it to happen before then. We would. We could be hopeful. We could be prayerful. But it's not coming until He does. And I don't want any of us walking in disillusionment or constant discouragement because it hasn't come yet. It simply hasn't come yet. But there is a reality in which this peace is present as well. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says that in Christ we have received the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. This isn't a a future promise, it's a present reality that in the midst of the strife, as we await His coming eternal peace, we can have an inner peace that we walk with. Where we can look at at the, the relative strife in our world and we can have hope and contentment and inner peace and the absence of anxiety as we walk through it because we've entrusted our lives and our families to Jesus. Because our fears about the economy, our fears about... Every issue in the world ultimately won't be fixed by worrying about them, but God is still in control in spite of them. And when we trust that God is mighty and we trust that God is good, we can walk in peace in the midst of strife. So so the peace that we long for, right, it's coming, it's not here, and it won't be until Jesus returns, but we can experience an inward peace that's a foretaste of what Jesus will do. And so how should we live between now and then? Well, there's a couple things that I think are important because this isn't just, well, you know, forget about everything and have inner pieces. What can we do actively? The first thing I would tell you is that we can pray for peace. The Bible says that, that this peace that's lasting, eternal, and perfect comes when Jesus comes. And so what can we do? Well, we pray for the kingdom. That's what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer when he said... 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's praying for the king and his kingdom to come. Jesus taught us to pray that way. How many of us pray that God's kingdom will be invading constantly the reality that we have each day? That this place, in anticipation of Jesus coming, would become transformed incrementally to be more and more like the kingdom. How many of us pray for Jesus' return and establish his kingdom? Or how many of us just pray really small prayers about our own lives? And, you know, if if God answered every prayer that I had given up the last 30 days, would the world be transformed or would my life just be easier? Jesus wants us to pray for the coming kingdom, to pray for peace. To pray for peace globally, nationally, familially, racially, interpersonally. Pray for peace. I would add to that praying for the kingdom to come in its fullness is a prayer that our churches would increasingly more and more embody that peace. That strife and conflict would not reign in our churches. It's going to happen. We're, going, we're, we're sinners hanging out together. We're going to experience conflict with one another. But when we do, what's our response? Because Jesus has said that, that the world's just not going to do this. The Bible said, you're going to do this. This is your calling to live in unity with one another. This is what Jesus asks for us. It's what he commands of us. And it's what the world will look to and see in us that makes the gospel believable. And so a couple other things we can do. One is we can seek peace. We can seek it proactively. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, describe This very simply. says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I love that. He says, you need to be eager... To maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, so this isn't something that we do passively. This isn't something we do reluctantly. Is that as Christians within the body of Christ, within this family, that we ought to walk in unity with one another. He says, because it's so important and because it's so difficult, you need to be eager to chase after this. That's difficult. It's difficult to maintain a passion for that because a lot of times we've been wronged and we want to be vindicated. But he says, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of priests by what? Bearing with one another in love. That means bearing with means I actually put up with your junk and you put up with mine. That's what it is to bear with one another. So embedded in that is this reality that that we all bring junk to the table and that we all are required to give a gracious response to someone else's. So we bear with one another. And we do that eagerly. Being eager describes an impassioned, proactive disposition towards peace. We seek it joyfully. We seek it passionately and proactively. And so we seek peace. Romans 12 would tell us, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as you can control whatever conflict, pursue peace. The second thing I would tell you after seeking peace is when peace is absent to restore peace. 
As Jesus describes the kingdom in Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So seeking to restore peace is a good thing. And it demonstrates our sonship. That we are, in fact, God's children if we are peacemakers. Why? Because God is a peacemaker. God has come to us in Jesus to establish peace. And if we're God's children, we exemplify those family traits and we strive to be peacemakers. And I want to give you four basic practices that will help. And jumping into that, I want to point out these are four basic practices that I struggle with. And I suspect most of us do. And so I want to lay out four basic practices to keeping and restoring peace. The first is to freely forgive. And I want to be honest, forgiving doesn't mean I won't talk bad about you. It doesn't mean I'm going to not dodge you when I run into you at H-E-B. Forgiving means that I am choosing to absorb the negative effects of your sin against me, and I am choosing to lay down my right to seek justice. Now, if we're talking about something where someone needs to be in prison, that's a whole different deal, and we can, we can talk about that. Because forgiveness in some issues is a different thing because we have to protect our community at large. So someone assaults, does something like that, forgiveness means laying down bitterness towards them. But if we're talking just interrelationally, what we're dealing with is me saying, I'm laying down the right to get even. I'm laying down the right to get even. So in our relationships with one another, forgiveness means absorbing the negative effects of their sin against me and laying down the right to vengeance. We entrust justice to God and to the authorities, but we don't take it into our own hands. The second thing is that it means repenting of our own sin. Then when we have sinned against our brothers and sisters, we confess that before them and we ask for their forgiveness. Repentance is identifying our action as sin, desiring to not walk in it anymore. So when I sin against someone, my my responsibility as their brother is to go to them in repentance and to say, I I sinned against you in this way. I'm sorry. I'm asking you to forgive me. I tell you that, that that is a disarming step. Oftentimes, that's all that is needed to initiate peace. is to come in humility, treating one as a brother, expressing regret for sinful behavior that you've done. Because when someone comes before you in that kind of humility, it is difficult to maintain bitterness against them. It's just hard. So if you want to seek peace and restore peace, you forgive when sinned against. You repent when you sin against others. And then a third, and I think this one's an expression of humility, ask questions. Ask questions. When someone has done something that's obviously offensive to you, it is helpful to step back and say, why did they do that? Is there a way that that a reasonable, good person who has goodwill towards me, could have meant something different by what I just took offense at. Is that possible? And if so, let's explore that. You see, the opposite of asking questions is creating stories. And that's what we do. Most of the time that we get offended by something, we're not offended by the act itself, but by the story we created to make sense of it. And I'll explain that. Uh, Sometimes when people laugh in our presence, we laugh with them, and it's funny. 
Other times, people laugh in our presence and we think they're laughing at us and we get angry. Now, the laughing is laughing. The reason sometimes we laugh with them and sometimes we get offended is because we've interpreted other signals and in our minds we've said, this is what happened. This person was funny and laughing with me. This person was mean and laughing at me. And so sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. When we create these stories, our tendency is to create uh, what some call victim victim villain narratives. Where I'm the victim and this person is the villain. And when I do that, I stop seeing them as the child of God that he's created them to be. And I see them as essentially bad and my enemy. And that's a real problem when we're brothers. And when I tell myself that story and I'm the victim and they're the villain, then I give myself permission to treat them in ways that are, that are unacceptable. Because they deserve whatever comes to them. And the answer to pull out of that kind of victim-villain narrative is to step back and just ask some questions about what someone has done. Could I have misunderstood this? Is it possible that they meant this a way differently than what I received? And then to go to that person and to say, uh, when you did this or said this, I, I took it this way and that made me feel like this. Is that what you meant? See, that's the practice of walking in humility with one another. That's exceptionally difficult to do because it requires that we step away from the emotive responses of our flesh and begin to sort through what's happened with someone, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And that's really the fourth practice here is twofold. One is to check the sin in your own heart, recognizing that it's always present. And two, to trust the work of the Spirit in your brother or sister's heart, knowing that that's also present. We recognize that when we are offended, when there is strife, that you and I can misread things. We can come with kind of sinful attitudes that lead us to to respond in certain ways. And so we want to be aware that that's a reality and begin to search our own hearts for that. And at the same time, begin to trust the work of the Spirit in our brother or sister, knowing that He's at work in them. and, And that there's a high probability that whatever it was that offended me so deeply wasn't intended in the way that I received it. Sometimes it was, and there's sin that needs to be rebuked confess or repent of and we need to go through restoration more often than not it, it's a clear misunderstanding between goodwill people and so we ask questions and we trust each other's hearts we ask questions of our own and, and he, here's the deal we can do this playbook over and over again and I, and I can tell you that it works that this is the practice of walking in humility with one another but i also tell you this you're going to have to keep running these plays over and over and over and over again because we live in a world that is full of strife. And, and so, man, you can, you can get to the line of scrimmage and you can call that audible and you can pick up a first down this time, but the defense is going to come again with a wrinkle you didn't expect. And you're going to have to respond to that. And it's never ending until Jesus returns. But the promise is this, there will be peace. And you and I can seek it and pursue it as, as God's people and it, it, it's going to be elusive to us, but it's coming. And the reason we know this peace is coming is because the Bible has proclaimed to us that the Prince of Peace is coming. And that when He comes, He will establish His kingdom forever in perfect righteousness, justice, and peace. And so we have hope of His coming. And as a people of hope, we pursue what God has called us to. Because we delight in this peace that Jesus is bringing. We live out this peace daily in our relationships.
But this isn't a peace that you can get from the world. This is a peace that only comes from knowing Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Who died for our sins so that, so that God could declare peace between Himself as a righteous judge and us as wicked, sinful men and women. Who came by His Spirit to unite us into one people. But this, this all stands or falls with our trusting in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And our longing for His coming. So if you're here today and you, you recognize that, that peace isn't present and, it, and you don't know how to pursue it, it begins with Jesus. There is no lasting, complete peace outside of Him. Today could be the day that God declares peace with you because you've trusted in Jesus who died for your sins and rose again. And the day that He establishes a unity with you and a new family that isn't perfect, but desires to walk in peace with one another in the world around us. I pray today that many of you would receive the peace that Jesus offers and that as God's people, we would walk in that unity and peace as a testimony to our world. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us and your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have given us by your spirit and your calling a peace that passes understanding, that you have empowered us to be ambassadors of the peace that your Son brought to us. I pray that that, that sense of unity and, and peace amongst one another would permeate our relationships, that the church would stand in stark contrast to the world around us. Father, not that we would walk in sinless perfection because we know that, that we'll fail all the time, but that we would learn to walk in grace with one another. That we would learn to, to forgive freely and to seek forgiveness through confession and repentance. And that in that way uh, of seeking and extending grace that we would demonstrate the truth of the gospel. And that the world would know that you have sent Jesus to be the savior of the world. And, and as Jesus taught us in John 13 that our love for one another would be the testimony that we belong to him. Father I pray for that unity and peace to spread like wildfire through the church here in Tomball and around the world. And in that testimony, that many would be brought to eternal peace with you through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and for his great work that we worship in Jesus' name. Amen.